Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Friday, March 3rd. I'm Mia from Drake University. Here is our first story. City Receives State Grant Seeks Input for Community Health Assessment Project by David Golbitz. The City Count The City of Council Bluffs has been awarded a grant to create a community asset map addressing the city's nutritional and physical activity needs and is asking for residents' input. Asset mapping allows communities to create a centralized list of resources, people, organizations, programs, visualize their strengths, and determine what barriers might exist that keep people from being able to access these resources. The grant is from the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services as part of its Healthy Eating Active Living Community Pilot Project. It's a movement within the state to try and create healthier environments and healthier people, said Sue Cutsforth, said Sue Cutsforth, Information Officer for the Metropolitan Area Planning Agency, which is helping the City of Council Bluffs implement the project. MAPA held an informational meeting on Tuesday, February 28th at the Council Bluffs Public Library for members of the community to take part in a community health assessment, listing the organizations and initiatives they think contribute to the community's physical and mental wellness and what resources are underutilized or non-existent. The meeting was the first step in securing funding for projects that could lead to the implementation of nutrition and physical activity initiatives. Next, the city and MAPA are asking residents to fill out a brief online survey to get more feedback on what resources residents think the community has and what it needs. The community health assessment survey can be found at tinyurl.com and must be filled out by mid-March. A community health assessment at the Council Bluffs Public Library used post-it notes to list health and wellness resources in and around Council Bluffs, as well as areas where the community might be lacking. This includes a picture of different post-it notes on the wall that include all of these different ideas. Our next story is Think Green, Shamrock Shuffle Nears Starting Line by Tim Johnson. If you're anxious for spring, it's time to think green, as in St. Patrick's Day. Council Bluffs St. Patty's Day-themed Shamrock Shuffle will be held on Saturday, March 11th from 9.30 a.m. to 1 p.m. in the 100 block of West Broadway. The event will include a chip-timed 5K, a new 200-meter leprechaun chase, free run, and an outdoor party with activities, live music slash DJ, and food vendors. The shuffling will start and finish in the 100 block. The Leprechaun Chase, designed for children ages 10 and younger and sponsored by The Hub, takes off at 9.30 a.m. The 5K Shamrock Shuffle, organized by the 712 Initiative and presented by TS Bank, steps off at 10 a.m. Participants are encouraged to wear St. Patrick's Day attire to fit the theme. Registration is $10 for children 10 and younger, $25 for youth ages 11 to 18, and $35 for shufflers 19 and older. Proceeds support the 712 initiatives, programming, and events. Participants receive a free Shamrock Shuffle beanie and commemorative cup with an 11 and older registration. To register, visit their website. There is also a photo that includes uh, John Erzendowski, 
Center, who dons a leprechaun costume in the 712's Initiative's annual Shamrock Shuffle on Saturday, March 12th. This year's shuffle will be held on March 11th. And the person in the photo is wearing a leprechaun costume, all green, with a orange fake beard. On to our next story. Into the Woods premieres March 10th by Emily Sheepy. The Chantelier Theatre premieres Into the Woods on March 10th, but at the Hoff Family Arts and Culture Center, so that way you don't have to actually go Into the Woods. Into the Woods follows a baker and his wife who wish to have a child, Cinderella, who wishes to attend the King's Festival, and Jack, who wishes his cow would give milk, a press release said. When the baker and his wife learn that they cannot have a child because of a witch's curse, the two set off on a journey to break the curse. Everyone's wish is granted, but the consequences of their actions return to haunt them later with disastrous results. Those behind the scenes of the production are director Mackenzie Zelick, music director David Michael Gallant, choreographer Jason DeLong, assistant stage manager Krista Freemuth, costume designer Isbin Costume Gallery, set designer Joey Lawrence, sound designer Lexi Knoxville, light design Jack Rock, and property... Okay, sorry, no more. Those behind the scenes of the production are director Mackenzie Zelick, music director David Michael Gallant, choreographer Jason DeLong, assistant stage manager Krista Freemuth, costume design Isbin Costume Gallery, set designer Joey Lorensk, sound designer Lexi Knoxville, light design JC Rock, and properties Annalisa Swarzik. Those that you'll see on stage, according to the release, are Felicia Aritzia as Snow White and Cinderella's mom, Megan Berger as the baker's wife, Angela Frey as Jack's mother, Charlotte Henderson as Rapunzel, Robbie Helwig as Milky White, Izzy Horning as Sleeping Beauty, Christopher Johnson as Rapunzel's prince, Nicolette Nouveau as the, as the giant's wife and granny, Michelle Matherly as Cinderella's stepmother, Ross Mumford as Cinderella's prince, Justin Parsley as the steward, Hannah Post as Lucinda, Cork Raymer as the mysterious man, Lily Sanow as Little Red Riding Hood, Brendan Simmons as Jack, Jay Shrigley, Jay Shrigley as the wolf and Cinderella's father, Chanel Savage as the witch, Charlie Tomac as Florinda, Jerry Van Horn as the narrator, Teresa Walker as Cinderella, David James Zenchuk Jr. David James Zenchuk Jr. as the baker. Shows run March 10th through 11th at 7.30 p.m., March 12th at 2 p.m., March 17th through the 18th at 7.30 p.m., and March 19th at 2 p.m., with tickets ranging from $20 to $30. For more information or to purchase tickets, please visit their website or stop at the box office at 1001 South 6th Street. On to our next story. New York Company to Run Iowa's New Private School Aid Program. Lee Gazette, Des Moines Bureau. Des Moines, a New York-based company that administrate that, starting over. 
Des Moines, a New York-based company that administers multiple states' education savings account plans, have been selected to run Iowa's new program, Governor Kim Reynolds' office announced Tuesday. Odyssey will operate Iowa's program, which passed into law earlier this year. The program is projected to spend roughly $315 million annually in state funding to roughly 7,600 annual scholarships for eventually any Iowa student to put towards private school tuition and other education-related expenses. Now that it has selected Odyssey, the state will begin contact negotiations. Starting over. Now that it has selected Odyssey, the state will begin contract negotiations with the company, the governor's office said in a news release. Iowa's program is being phased in over three years, starting with the 2023-2024 school year, when it will give preference to low-income students. Eventually, all Iowa students will be eligible for the scholarships. Odyssey was chosen from among four companies that applied to run Iowa's program, the governor's office said. The company registered as a lobbying organization in January, but did not formally register in support of the governor's proposal, according to state lobbying records. Odyssey operates similar programs in two other states, Arizona and Idaho, the governor's office said. Odyssey was chosen for its ability to manage all aspects of program administration, including applications, financial transactions, compliance, fraud prevention, and customer service, the governor's office said. On to our next story. Council Bluffs School Board Approves Van Purchase for Special Ed by Tim Johnson. The Council Bluffs Community School District Board of Education approved purchasing a van Tuesday and took care of some other district business. The 2022 Ford Transit van was requested by the special... Starting over. The 2022 Ford Transit van was requested by the Special Education Department to transport students to educational programs in Omaha and Council Bluffs, according to board materials. The money for the $37,000 purchase will come out of the district's general fund, but the district will receive $5,289 per year for seven years as additional special education spending authority for the purchase. The van is being purchased from a dealer in Illinois because area dealers did not have a comparable vehicle in their inventory. Board members approved 2022 through 2023 and 2023 through 2024 applications to the Iowa Department of Education for a waiver of third and fourth year world language offer and teach requirements. In Iowa, schools are required to offer and teach four sequential units of one world language. However, the Department of Education may waive the third and fourth year of the language requirement if a licensed teacher was employed and assigned a schedule that would have allowed students to enroll in a world language class, the class was properly scheduled and no students enrolled in the, in the class. The Council Bluffs Community School District annually provides students with the ability to enroll in Spanish 3 and Spanish 4, which are listed in the course catalog annually and available to students during the course registration process. However, students choose a concurrent enrollment option so they can earn college credit. The board recognized Jenny Danger, a counselor at College View Elementary School, as the district's licensed employee of the month, and Abby Paris, special education paraeducator at Longfellow Elementary School, as its support staff person of the month. 
the board gratefully acknowledged and accepted a gift of $1,590 from Grant Novak and a gift of $1,563.81 from Michael Grant through their participation in the Union Pacific Fund for Effective Government PAC Charitable Gift Program. On to our next story. SpaceX sends crew to space station by Mauricia Dunn. Cape Canaveral, Florida. SpaceX launched four astronauts to the International Space Station for NASA on Thursday, including the first person from the Arab world going up for an extended months-long stay. The Falcon rocket bolted from Kennedy Space Center shortly after midnight, illuminating the night sky as it headed up the East Coast. Nearly 80 spectators from the United Arab Emirates watched from the launch site as astronaut Sultan al-Nayadi, only the second Emirate to fly to space, blasted off on his six-month mission. Half a world away in Dubai and elsewhere across the UAE, schools and offices broadcast the launch live. Also riding the Dragon capsule that's due at the space station on Friday, NASA's Stephen Bowen, a retired Navy submariner who logged three space shuttle flights, and Warren Woody Hoberg, a former research scientist at Massachusetts Institute of Technology and space newbie, and Andre Fredier. Andre Fedyevev. Oh my god. And Andrei Fedyev, a space rookie who's retired from the Russian Air Force. Welcome to orbit. SpaceX launch control radioed, noting liftoff occurred four years to the day after the capsule's first orbital test flight. If you enjoyed your ride, please don't forget to give us five stars. The first attempt to launch them was called off Monday at the last minute because of a clogged filter in the engine ignition system. It may have taken two times, but it was worth the trip, Bowen said. NASA's Space Operations Mission Chief, Kathy Luters, said Thursday's launch enhanced a night sky already showcasing a conjunction of Venus and Jupiter. The two planets appeared side by side all week, seeming to grow even closer. We added a bright new star to the night sky tonight, she told reporters. The newcomers will replace a U.S.-Russian-Japanese crew that has been at the space station since October. The other station residents are two Russian and American... Oh, God. Starting over. The newcomers will replace a U.S.-Russian-Japanese crew that has been at the space station... Starting over. The newcomers will replace a U.S.-Russian-Japanese crew that has been at the space station since October. The other station residents are two Russians and an American whose six-month stay was doubled until September after their Soyuz capsule sprang a leak. A replacement Soyuz arrived last weekend. Al-Nayadi, a communications engineer, thanked everyone in Arabic and then English once, once reaching orbit. Launch was incredible. Amazing, he said. He served as backup for the first Emir Emirati astronaut, Haza al-Mansouri, who rode a Russian rocket to the space station in 2019 for a week-long visit. The oil-rich federation paid for al-Nayadi's seat on the SpaceX flight. The UAE's Minister for Public Education and Advanced Technology, Sarah al-Amari, 
said the long mission provides us a new venue for science and scientific discovery for the country. We don't want to just go to space and then not have much to do there or not have impact, said the director general of the UAE's Space Center in Dubai, Salim Al-Mari. The Emirates already have a spacecraft orbiting Mars, and a mini-rover is hitching a ride to the moon on a Japanese lander. Two new UAE astronauts are training with NASA's latest astronaut picks in Houston. Saudi Prince Sultan bin Salim was the first Arab in space, launching abroad aboard the shuttle Discovery in 1985. He was followed two years later by Syrian astronaut Mohammed Faris, launched by Russia. Both were in space for about a week. Al-Nayadi will be joined this spring by two Saudi astronauts going to the space station on a short private SpaceX flight paid for by their government. It's going to be really exciting, really interesting to have three Arabs in space at once, he said last week. Our region is also 30 Our region is also thirsty to learn more. He's taking up lots of dates to share with his crewmates, especially during Ramadan, the Muslim holy month that begins this month. As for observing Ramadan in orbit, he said fasting isn't compulsory since it could make him weak and jeopardize his mission. Bowen, the crew's leader, said the four have have gelled well as a team despite differences between their countries. Even with the tension over the war in Ukraine, the U.S. and Russia have continued to work together on the space station and trade seats on rides there. It's just tremendous to have the opportunity to fly with these guys, Bowen said. This article also includes two pictures. The first picture shows four men in spacesuits waving at the camera. Uh, from left to right, Russian consummant Andrei Fedyev, NASA astronauts Warren Hoberg and Stephen Bowen, and United Arab Emirates astronaut Sultan Al-Nayadi posed for a photo Wednesday after leaving the operations and checkout building for a trip to launch pad 39A at the Kennedy Space Center in Cape, Cap- in Cape Canaveral, Florida. Also included in the photo, the second photo includes a shot of the space uh, rocket going up into space and you can see a bright light shining from behind it. In this long exposure photo, a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket lifts off Thursday from launch pad 39A at the Kennedy Space Center in Cape Canaveral, Florida. On to our next story. Heartland Christian Librarian celebrates Seuss's birthday with students. Heartland Christian School Librarian Cindy Merriam, dressed as the cat in the hat, read a copy of Dr. Seuss's I Can Read With My Eyes Shut to a class of kindergartners on Thursday, March 2nd, 2023. This is the 12th year Merriam has dressed as the cat in the hat, the popular character created by Dr. Seuss, the pen name of Theodore Seuss Geisel, to celebrate the author's March 2nd birthday with Heartland Christian students. Dr. Seuss would have been 119 this year. This article includes several photos of Miriam dressed as the cat in the hat, reading it to a bunch of little kindergartners. She's making all sorts of fun faces and reading the book to them and helping them make fun little craft glasses. 
School librarian Cindy Merriam Center chats with kindergartners Declan Driver Left and Paxton Zachman as they work on a Dr. Seuss-related craft project on Thursday, March 2nd, 2023. On to our next story, Face of the Day by Joe Shearer. Jaime Dagnew grew up 8,000 miles away from Council Bluffs, but she's been a part of the community for about four years. Dagnew is from Addis Abada, Ababa, starting over. Dagnew is from Addis Ababa, the capital city of Ethiopia, Africa. She said she also spent time in Tanzania, another country in East Africa. She moved to the United States after high school to pursue an environmental studies degree at Augustana College in Rock Island, Illinois. She also minored in geography. Dagnew earned her bachelor's degree in 2018 and then moved to Council Bluffs. Dagnew spent time working with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources at Lake Manawa State Park, as well as Potawatomi Conservation. She also worked side jobs and volunteered, with one of the organizations being Habitat for Humanity of Council Bluffs. She ended up on the Habitat staff through AmeriCorps, and when her time came to leave, Dagnew said the administration didn't want to see her go. Habitat CB created the program Associate Title, which she held. Starting over. Habitat CB created the program Associate Title, which she's held since January 2022. Dagnew helps oversee Habitat Council Bluffs home ownership and home repair programs alongside program manager Kim Smith. The Home Repair Program is an income-based service for residents of Potawatomi and Mills Counties, and she's there to help every step of the way, from application time to when the repairs are completed. Dagnew said working for Habitat has been an amazing experience, and her work has left her with a greater appreciation of Council Bluffs and the community. It's made where I live way more interesting and more invested in the people around me, she said. Dagnew is quite busy these days as Habitat Council Bluffs has opened up applications for the latest round in home in the home ownership program. She said those looking to apply need to attend an in-person class to see if they qualify and if home ownership is the right choice for them. Those who wish to apply must live or work in Potawatomi or Mills counties. However, it is noted that homes are only built in Council Bluffs. The classes are held at the Habitat for Humanity of Council Bluffs offices, 1228 South Main Street. There are two more informational classes held at 6 p.m. the next two Thursdays, and they last less than an hour. Links for tickets to the Home Ownership Program information sessions can be found on the Habitat Council Bluffs Facebook page or on their website. People can also call 712-256-0800. 3-8 to make arrangements. Dagnew and the Habitat CB crew are hoping to see some new faces and get the ball rolling on home ownership these next few weeks. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Friday, March 3rd on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Mia from Drake University. Iris volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any Iris program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747.
up next we have black vietnam vet at last getting his due medal of honor by darlene superville washington nearly 60 years after he was first recommended for the nation's highest award for bravery during the vietnam war retired colonel paris davis one of the first black officers to lead a special forces team in combat will receive the prestigious medal of honor on friday the overdue recognition for the 83-year-old Virginia resident comes after his recommendation for the medal was lost, resubmitted, and then lost again. It wasn't until 2016, half a century after Davis risked his life to save some of his men by fighting off the North Vietnamese, that a volunteer group of advocates painstakingly recreated and resubmitted the paperwork. Some of Davis's supporters believe racism was to blame, but Davis doesn't dwell on it. He said he doesn't know why it took decades for his heroism to be recognized. Right now, I'm overwhelmed, he said in an interview the day before he attends a White House ceremony where President Joe Biden will hang the blue ribbon holding the Medal of Honor around Davis's neck. When you're fighting, you're not thinking about this moment, Davis says. You're just trying to get through that moment. That moment lasted almost 19 hours and stretched over two days in mid-June 1965. Davis, then a captain and commander with the 5th Special Forces Group, engaged in a nearly continuous combat during a pre-dawn raid on a North Vietnamese army camp in the village of Bong Son in Binh Duyn province. He led the charge against the enemy, called for provision artillery fire, engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat with the North Vietnamese, and thwarted the capture of three American soldiers all while suffering wounds from gunshots and grenade fragments. Davis used his pinky finger to fire his rifle after his hand was shattered by an enemy grenade, according to reports. Davis repeatedly sprinted into an open rice paddy to rescue each member of his team, according to the Army Times. His entire team survived. Davis refused to leave the battlefield until his men were safely removed. Davis, a native of Cleveland who retired in 1985 with the rank of colonel, compares receiving the medal to getting a long-anticipated ice cream cone. Biden called him several weeks ago to deliver the news. He said the weight in no way lessens the honor. It's just the antithesis of that, he said. It heightens the thing if you've got to wait that long. It's like someone promised you an ice cream cone. You know what it looks like. You know what it smells like. You just haven't licked it. Davis's commanding officer recommended him for the military's top honor, but the paperwork disappeared. He eventually was awarded a Silver Star Medal, the military's third highest combat medal, as an interim honor. But members of Davis's team have argued that his skin color was a factor in the disappearance of his Medal of Honor recommendation. I believe that someone purposefully lost the paperwork, Ron Dice, a junior member of Davis's team in Bong Swan, said in a separate interview. Dice, now 79, helped compile the recommendation that was submitted in 2016. He said he knew Davis was recommended for the Medal of Honor shortly after the battle in 1965, and he spent years wondering why Davis hadn't been awarded the medal. Nine years ago, he learned that a second nomination was submitted and that also was somehow, quote, lost. But I don't believe they were lost, Dice said. I believe they were intentionally discarded. They were discarded because he was black, and that's the only conclusion that I can come to. 
Army officials said there is no evidence of racism in Davis's case. In early 2021, Christopher Miller, then at the acting defense secretary, ordered an expedited review of Davis's case. He argued in an opinion column later that that year that awarding Davis the Medal of Honor would address an injustice. Some issues in our nation rise above partisanship, Miller wrote. The Davis case meets that standard. Davis's daughter, Reagan Davis Hopper, a mom of two teenage sons, said she only learned of her dad's heroism in 2019. But like him, she said she tries not to dwell on disappointment in how the situation was handled. I try not to think about that. I try not to let that weigh me down and make me lose the thrill and excitement of the moment, Hopper said. I think that's most important, to just look ahead and think about how exciting it is for America to meet my dad for the first time. I'm just proud of him. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Friday, March 3rd, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Mia from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. Now we move on to the obituaries. Wayne Shorter, jazz saxophone pioneer, dies at 89. Associated Press, Los Angeles. Wayne Shorter, an influential jazz innovator whose lyrical, complex jazz compositions and pioneering saxophone playing sounded through more than half a century of American music, has died. He was 89. Shorter died Thursday, surrounded by his family in Los Angeles, says Alyssa Kingsley, a representative for the multi-Grammy winner. No cause of death was given. Visionary composer, saxophonist, visual artist, devout Buddhist, devoted husband, father, and grandfather, Wayne Shorter has embarked on a new journey as part of his extraordinary life, departing the earth as we know it in search of an abundance of new challenges and creative possibilities, a statement released by Kingsley said. It called him a gentle spirit who was always inquisitive and constantly exploring. Shorter, a tenor saxophonist, made his debut in 1959 and would go on to be a foundational member of two of the most seminal jazz groups, Art Blakely's Jazz Messengers and the Miles Davis Quintet. Over the next eight decades, Shorter's wide-spanning collaborations would include co-founding the 70s fusion band Weather Report, some 10 album appearances with Joni Mitchell, and further explorations with Carlos Santana and Steely Dan. Many of Shorter's textured and elliptical compositions, including Speak No Evil, Black Nile, Footprints, and Nefertiti, became modern jazz standards and explained became modern jazz standards and expanded the harmonic horizons of jazz across some of its most fast-evolving eras. Herbie Hancock once said of Shorter in Miles Davis's second great quintet, The master writer to me in that group was Wayne Shorter. He still is a master. Wayne was one of the few people who brought music to Miles that didn't get changed. Hancock praised Shorter for his musical expertise and leaving a special mark in his life. Wayne Shorter, my best friend, left us with courage in his heart 
love, and compassion for all, and seeking spirit for the eternal future. Hancock said in a statement, he was ready for his rebirth. As it is with every human being, he is irreplaceable and was able to reach the pinnacle of excellence as a saxophonist, composer, orchestrator, and recently composer of the masterful opera, Iphigenia. I miss being around him and his special Wayne-isms, but I carry his spirit within my heart always. As a band leader, Shorter released more than 25 albums and won 12 Grammy Awards. In 2015, he was given a Lifetime Achievement Grammy. Last month, he won a Grammy in the category of Best Improvised Jazz Solo for Endangered Species with Leo Genovers. Shorter's work has been performed by several popular symphonies, including Chicago, Detroit, and Lyon, along with the National Polish Radio Symphonic and Orpheus Chamber Orchestras. In his career, Shorter had more than 200 compositions and was a Kennedy Center honoree in 2018. Maestro Wayne Shorter was our hero, guru, and beautiful friend, said Don Laws, the president of Blue Note Records, the label where he recorded several albums. His music possessed a spirit that came from somewhere way, way beyond and made this world a much better place. Likewise, his warmth and wisdom enriched the lives of everyone who knew him. Thankfully, the work he left behind will stay with us forever. Our hearts go out to Carolina and all who loved him. Next, Loretta May Bertelson. Loretta May Bertelson, 89, of Missouri Valley, Iowa, passed away on Monday, February 27, 2023, in Omaha, Nebraska. Loretta was born May 8, 1933, to Roy and Ellen Epperson Spires in Missouri Valley. She married Donald Bertelson on March 7, 1951. They were married 64 years and blessed with seven children. Loretta lived a career of wife, mother, and grandmother. She taught by example to work hard, enjoy life, and serve people. She shared her gift of hospitality and kept each guest in mind as she prepared special breakfasts, luncheons, and suppers. Loretta loved God and Jesus deeply and lived a life of great Christian faith. She was a faithful member of the Church of Christ Christian Church. She taught many Bible classes to both children and adults. She was a faithful volunteer in the church kitchen, too, and organized many funeral dinners and special events. Loretta was preceded in death by her parents, husband Don, brother-in-law Jerry Gunian, brother and wife Roberta and Robert Spires, and sister and husband, Nancy and Jean Dinsmore, sons-in-law Mike Peters and Kurt von Sternberg. Loretta is survived by her children, Patty Bertelson, Peggy and husband Gary Smiley of Imogen, Iowa, Pam and husband Eugene Gochner of Modman, Iowa, David and wife Diane Bertelson of Missouri Valley, Donna Peters of Hearst, Texas, Deborah von Sternberg of Missouri Valley, Lori and husband Mike Cooper of Pringmar, Iowa, 22 grandchildren, Travis, Anne, Smiley, Dustin Smiley, Brad, Sarah Smiley, Jill, Ted Randolph, Jewel, Craig Ansberg, Jolene, Josh Caldwell, Janelle Escalante, Gina Wyatt Hall, 
Jesse Paul Werner, Doug Cindy Burleson, Don Nick Cooster, Devin Sean Davis, Andrew Melissa Lover, Caitlin Josh Rogers, Josh Stone, Jacob Kathy Stone, Molly Michael Newman, Liz Brandon Witterock, Stacy Turner Hicks, Stefan Cooper, Aaron Matthew Wyatt, 33 great-grandchildren, Sister Judy Guinan of Mobile, Alabama, Sister-in-law Estella Witt of Horny Creek, Iowa, Brother-in-law Calvin Bertelstein of Logan, Iowa. Visitation will be Friday, March 3rd from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Christian Church in Missouri Valley. Funeral service, 11 a.m. Saturday, March 4th, also at the Christian Church in Missouri Valley. Final resting place, Grange Cemetery in Honey Creek. Memorials may be directed to Missouri Valley Christian Church, as Loretta's faith was an important part of her life. To view the live stream of the funeral service, please go to www.hennessyonline.com. Now on to sports. New MLB rules get mixed fan reaction by Alanis Thames. West Palm Beach, Florida. It took two hours, 19 minutes for the Miami Marlins to beat the Houston Astros 4-3 in a spring training game Monday, a game so fast that Ryan Murphy, a lifelong Houston fan, found himself lingering in the ballpark for a while after. I'm a baseball fan, said Murphy, wearing a 2022 Astros World Series gear. So if I stay here for four hours, for two hours, it doesn't matter to me. Faced with criticism of dwindling cultural relevance and a laggardly product compared to other major sports, Major League Baseball introduced a set of new rules this year to speed up games and attract younger fans. The bases are bigger to improve player safety and may also encourage more aggressive base running. Pitchers can only disengage from the pitching rubber twice per plate appearance, and there's a new pitch clock that gives players 30 seconds to resume play between batters. Between pitches, pitchers have 15 seconds with no body on and 20 seconds if there is a base runner. Less than a week into the spring training exhibition schedule, MLB seems to be getting what it wants, shaving about 20 minutes off the average length of games compared to last spring. Players have been mostly pleased with the rollout. The game feels more exciting, Washington Nationals left-hander Patrick Corbin said. Even some of the high-scoring games are under three hours. Fans seeing the new-look sport for the first time this week have had mixed reviews. Some, like Murphy, are indifferent to the changes. It's irrelevant to us as fans, honestly, said Murphy, who traveled from Utah to West Palm Beach for Houston's exhibition season. Players might think something different of it, but for us, it's all the same. How would I know the bases are bigger, honestly? I mean, we see a pitch clock out here, and we know it's there, but it doesn't matter to me. Some fans like the idea of being in and out of a game in under three hours, which is about how long an average nine-inning baseball game lasted in 2022. Others feel a nostalgic pull to how the sport has always been. I'm not a big fan of the pitch count, said Mark Mazesta, who traveled to Florida from Queens in New York. I feel like that's rushing the game. I feel like it was fine the way it was. Pitchers do take a while. 
and batters do take a while too. 15 seconds with nobody on base and 20 seconds with somebody on base is too short. Barbara Schiffman of Roseland, New Jersey, said she's okay some of the rules with some of the rules, but they should never let a game end on either the pitch clock or the batter clock. She was referring to a recent game between Atlanta and Boston that ended in a tie after Braves prospect Cal Conley was assessed an automatic strike for a pitch clock violation. Conley originally thought he'd won the game with a two-out, bases-loaded walk, but instead was given an at-bat ending strike after the umpire said he wasn't set in the box as the clock wound under eight seconds. When you get to that point in the game, Schifferman said, you've got to let the game play out without the clock. That would be my only concern. She also had a complaint about new limits on pitcher disengagements from the rubber. Pitchers can only attempt to pick off a runner twice. If they try a third pickoff and are unsuccessful, the runner gets to advance a base. That doesn't really work as far as keeping the runner from stealing, especially with the bigger base, Schiffman said. Those two things don't really go together. Mary Teresa Fosco of Perkisi of Percasey, Pennsylvania, said she liked the new rules, but added, the only tough thing is that the pitchers don't get time to rest. That's a trade-off that pitchers have grappled with early in the spring. The game does go quick, especially when they're swinging a lot, said Corbin, who started for Washington in Wednesday's 5-3 loss to the Cardinals. I've always worked kind of quick, I think it'd be a little bit tougher on guys that may be out of the pen or guys that aren't used to working that fast. But that's why we have this in spring training and hopefully get used to it. Fosco's brother Frank of Williamsport, Pennsylvania, said that even a 12-7 game between the Cardinals and New York Mets that he and Mary watched in Jupiter, Florida, moved along more quickly than the 2.59 game time might have suggested. The game went a good hour shorter than it probably would have, Mary Fosco said. That 15-second thing, that works for us. But she still wants to see more action. A few hits here and there is great, she said, but the walks just take forever. Everybody is swinging for the fences and stuff like that. Our next story is College Basketball, Nebraska Women Fall to Michigan, by Brent C. Wagner. Minneapolis. Overtime was one shot away for the Nebraska women's basketball team, and it actually got two chances in the final five seconds of the game. The first attempt was pretty good. Nebraska's best player, Jazz Shelley, near the top of the key. The second attempt, off the rebound of Shelley's miss, was better. Maddie Kroll open on the right wing with enough time to get set and shoot just before the buzzer. Both missed, so Michigan State won, and Nebraska's stay at the Big Ten tournament was a quick one. The Huskers were only on the ground in the Twin Cities for about 25 hours. The game was as close as the team's tourney seeds, with number 9 Michigan State beating the 8th-seeded Huskers 67-64 to in the second round at the Target Center. The biggest moment of the game came when Michigan State made five straight shots at the start of the fourth quarter, quickly turning a close game into a 10-point lead. The Spartans then withstood a late Nebraska comeback and will play top-seed Indiana on Friday. Nebraska got a first-round bye. The team was able to get a return flight to Lincoln on Thursday afternoon. Nebraska, 16-14. 
has lost five of its last seven games and now has to wait nine days to see if it will play in the postseason, most likely in the WNIT. Nebraska gave itself a chance in the final minute when Isabel Bourne made a three-pointer with 40 seconds left to cut the deficit to 67-64. to Then, Haby made another huge play, taking charge. Nebraska got the ball back with 16 seconds left near its basket with a chance to tie. The plan in the huddle was to see if Bourne could get another three and then go from there. Bissy had just hit a three, so we tried to use a little bit of a misdirection on Jazz to see if we could get Izzy coming back, Nebraska coach Amy Williams said. They defended pretty well on Izzy after she just hit that last three. So getting Jazz to that second, to that secondary cut and ball screen action was good. We did talk about everybody crashing the glass, and if we get an offensive rebound to kick it back out to the three-point line. That's exactly what we were able to do and get our best look of the game, probably. It just rimmed out. But certainly, the last play of the game is not what we feel like cost us the ball game. What did? Something that has been too familiar over the second half of the season. Turnovers, Williams said. Not getting off to a great start and having a slew of turnovers in a stretch where they want on that 11-0 run. That really made it tough to overcome late in the second half. Nebraska had 18 turnovers. MSU outscored the Huskers 18-17 on points off turnovers. In the first half, when Michigan State got a steal and layup, it came right in front of Nebraska's bench, crushing. D.D. Hagman led the Spartans with 18 points, and Maura Joyner added 16. Tayura Parks was a difference off the bench with eight points on the strong plays inside. That was part of the Spartans outscoring Nebraska 36-18 to in the paint. Nebraska was just 9 for 30 on two-point attempts. In the third quarter, Nebraska had a couple of brief leads but couldn't get the defensive stops to keep a lead. Shelley led Nebraska in scoring for the fifth straight game, making 24 points, including five three-pointers. Sam Haby, playing near her Moorhead, Minnesota home for the final time in college, had 14 points, eight rebounds, and five assists. Alexis Markowski had 12 points and 13 rebounds. Nebraska had a rough start to the game. In the opening one and a half minutes of the game, Nebraska had four turnovers and no shot attempts. Michigan State took a quick lead of 7-0 and 11-13. and 13. That was no way to start a tournament where the Huskers thought it could win some games. I think we were playing in those first few minutes as if we knew there was a lot on the line and just kind of tight and tense and not very focused, Williams said. We had the wrong person take the ball out of bounds on possession. Michigan State led 15-9 to after the first quarter, with eight of the Spartans' 15 points coming after Nebraska turnovers. Also, Nebraska missed 12 out of 15 shots in the first quarter. Even when the Huskers handled the initial full-court pressure, they couldn't get across the finish line. They'd sometimes have a turnover near the three-point line that led to a fast-break basket for the Spartans. When the turnovers come in pairs is when it's most crushing, Shelley said. That's very deflating, Shelley said. And unforced turnovers when you're making the mistake. Against their press was deflating because we couldn't get it over half court sometimes. 
Dean Lockwood, the acting Michigan State head coach, while Susie Merchant recovers from an accident, said there's a joke in recruiting that players say they want to run and play fast, but when you actually have to do it, it's a different story. Michigan State has players who have brought into playing defense all over the board. We talk about our strengths, Lockwood said. We're not as big as Nebraska, but we have quickness. We like our quickness, and we like our ability to harass people. Up next, we have Woodbine Girls Fall at State Against Number 2 Newell Fonda by Todd Danner. Woodbine's initial trip to the girls' state basketball tournament in 49 years resulted in an 80-61 loss to traditionally strong Newell Fonda in a Class 1A state quarterfinal matchup on March 1st at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. Advancing to the state tournament for the first time since 1974 and for the first time in the 5-on-5 era, Woodbine saw its dream season on the hardwood floor halted at 23-3 overall under the 12th year head coach Ryan Cohen. Newell Fonda, on the other hand, was making its 18th appearance at the state tournament and 6th straight as the Mustangs advanced to the semifinals at 23-2 overall. Newell Fonda's relentless full-court pressure bothered Woodbine into 25 turnovers that led to 35 points for Dick Junger's Mustangs club that used a big second quarter to turn the game in their favor at halftime. Up by only five at 22-17 after the first quarter, Newell Fonda outscored Woodbine 25-7 in the second en route to taking a 23-point advantage at 47-24 in the halftime locker room. Woodbine did a much better job of taking care of the ball in the second half and actually outscored Newell Fonda by a 36-34 margin, including 14-7 over the final eight minutes. The first half deficit, though, was just too much for the Tigers to overcome. You can watch all the film you want on Newell Fonda and practice beating the press, but until you're actually going live against them, it's hard to stimulate just how efficient and disciplined that team is as a unit. They're really, really good, commented Conan, whose Tigers were outscored 44-18 to in the paint and 17-4 to by bench personnel. I think what happened is that we got sped up. I don't think it was a conditioning thing. It might have been, but we actually never got to score against the press. We were able to break it at times, but we just weren't able to score, he added. If you don't score off the press, you don't break their confidence, and they're just going to keep doing it. Our goal was to try and disrupt their confidence, but they were just too good at what they do. Another big difference in the game was what it seemed like every time we made a basket, they would have an answer, and that just took any momentum. And that just took any momentum we had coming our way, Conan remarked. Three girls scored 10-plus points for Woodbine, with a fourth just one point away from double figures. For the game, Woodbine was 12 of 27 from three-point range, setting a new Class 1A state tournament single-game record, breaking the previous best of 11 threes by Newell Fonda in 2020. Tigers were 21 of 56 overall from the floor for 37.5%. Three girls combined to make the 12 three-point baskets for Woodbine, which drained seven of its 12 long-range bombs in the second half. Junior Nicole Hofer 
outpaced Woodbine's attack with 19 points, including 16 in the second half after sinking four of her team high-five three-point attempts after the break. Hofer, who was set five of seven from long range and six of nine overall from the field, also pulled down five rebounds. Sophomore Charlie Pryor added 17 points, including 14 in the second half after knocking down three of her four three-point tries after halftime. Hofer and Pryor combined for 30 of Woodbine's 36 points in the second half. Charlie Pryor also had four rebounds, two steals, and one assist. Junior Amanda Newton was the third Tiger player in double figures with 11 points to go with three boards and one block. Senior Addison Erickson finished with nine points, all in the first half on three three-point field goals. She also contributed four boards, four steals, and three assists. Sophomore Danielle Steinkler, oh gosh. Sophomore Danielle Steinkler added two points, one board and one assist, while junior Addison Murdoch had two points in the game's final minute after missing almost the entire winter campaign with an injury. Nicole Schur didn't get her name in the scoring column, but the senior point guard dished out nine assists while grabbing five boards and collecting two steals as the Tigers' floor general. Newell Fonda, which enjoyed its biggest lead of 33 points midway through the fourth quarter, joined Woodbin in placing three girls in double figures. Mary Walker led the Mustangs with 24 points to go with five boards. Kiera Jungers added 18 points and five boards, while McKenna Seavers enjoyed a terrific all-around game with a double-double effort of 12 points and 10 assists to go with six boards and three steals. Newell Fonda for the game was 8 of 22 from behind the three-point arc and 34 of 61 overall from the field for a 55.7%. Neither team went to the free throw line a lot, as Woodbin was 6 of 7 and Newell Fonda 5 of 8. Woodbin out-rebounded Wood, okay. out-rebounded Newell Fonda by a 33-30 to 30 margin, but had 9 more turnovers than the Mustangs, which had 14 fast break points to 0 for the Tigers. To say Woodbine had a successful hardwood season would be an understatement. All the Tigers were able to achieve were winning a school record 23 games, capturing the Rolling Valley Conference Championship at 15-1, and qualify for the school's first-ever state tournament in five-on-five play. It's such a blessing to coach these girls. They're such a fantastic group, Conan said. They were focused. They stayed committed to each other and to winning. I think they learned a lot about chemistry and themselves. It was just an awesome group of kids to work with, he added. The state tournament game was the last for three Woodbine seniors in Schur, Erickson, and Courtney O'Day, three outstanding seniors. I'm not sure how we're going to do without them. The things that Schur and Erickson have done the past four years you can't put into words, Conan said. It's going to be a new team with a slightly different look but we should be athletic and longer next year. I'm already looking forward to it, the Tigers boss stated. Newell Fonda's Jungers was very impressed with Woodbine's club. We knew going in that Woodbine had a very fast and athletic team. They beat Westwood, and Westwood was a very good team, commented Jungers. I was hoping we might be able to wear them down a bit, but they fought hard for 32 minutes. I was very impressed with how they knocked down 12 three-pointers, 
I'm not sure how many times they've done that this year, but they did today, he added. We were just fortunate enough that we forced enough turnovers to create more opportunities for us. I thought that was a very important stat in the game. I thought Woodbine did a nice job in rebounding. They got a lot of offensive boards in the first half, Jungers remarked. Woodbine will be just fine. They have a lot of younger players with athletic ability. Sometimes the hardest part is just getting to state. You see so many tough teams during the regional trail, and I really think they have figured it out. I thought their coach made some great adjustments throughout the game, and I thought their kids did a great job of seeing the floor. You don't get all those threes without penetration in the middle of the floor, and that's exactly what Woodbine did. That made it tougher on us for a while, Jungers stated. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Friday, March 3rd. The nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 3 p.m. Iris volunteers would love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about today's broadcast or any IRIS program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. I'm Mia from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for listening.